This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the all things peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. It's Michelle and Erin here today, and the topic of today falls in the functional category, and we're talking all things early intervention assessments. Insert your eye roll now, ladies and gents, and if you let out an audible huff, I'm game for that too. Let's be honest, testing is a pain in the you-know-what, but alas, it's a necessary evil that assesses how our little ones are doing on an annual basis. But why? I remember asking when I made the leap from an early childhood special education classroom setting where re-evaluations were completed only once every three years to one year. Well, that's easy. In the wide world of early intervention, we need to have data to drive what we are doing during our therapy sessions on an annual basis to determine the rate of progress and in what specific areas of language we should be focusing on. But now I'm left with another question. Which test, which assessment should I use? 
Now that's where I have my gigantic groan of disgust. I mean, why? Why is that such a problem? Well, this is the part that irks me to my core. The data we collect for the evaluations, the evaluations themselves that we choose to use, it's only as good as the data originally put into the assessment. That's a more PC way of saying, if you evaluate a kiddo with a poorly normed assessment, you're going to have iffy test results and iffy data. And unfortunately, that is the data that's going to drive that child's plan of care. And it's a bit fair to say that the quality of our goals and subsequently even our interventions are directly tied with the quality of the assessment that we have at our disposal. So that's a pretty big soapbox right out the gate. Erin, how you doing, lady? Got any tests that are driving you bonkers too? Possibly. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Uh, maybe. We're doing, we're doing good. We're doing good. What, what are you down to? Like two months left in your uh, CF? Two months left. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You're going to have your C's. We're going to have to celebrate. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> weird. It's a little weird. I feel Savannah coming. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So y'all, we got a lot of ground to cover and we're short on time. So we're just going to go right into it. Okay. So before we go into the different type of assessments, let's take it back to the basics. Let's do some definitions um, to kind of go from there. So we're going to start with uh, validity, specificity, sensitivity, and um, then we're um, going to go right into the assessments. Also, caveat, today we're only covering the English versions because I speak English and redneck English, and that's mm-hmm. about all I'm qualified to assess. I speak some Spanish. Yeah. Well, but, that's, so like the early kiddos, I'm qualified. Once they start saying more than a few words, pass on. Yep. Nope. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't do that. But um, if you ask me what the raw neck is, I can translate that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I don't know if any of y'all saw an article that came out a couple years ago, but um, uh, it was published by Asha and it was called PLS5, a validity study by Kristen K. Smith, MACCC, and SLP. And they went in and they compared the validity between the PLS-5 and the self preschool 2. And um, it was Smith, K. You can find it at um, HTTP, the polka dots, backslash, backslash, community.asha.org, backslash, blogs, backslash, I can't talk. We need more coffee this late in the day. Kristen hyphen Smith, 2014. There it is. Okay. Um, But within the article, and there's another article um, that I'm going to reference, one by Paul in 2007, they define validity. They break it down. Content validity refers to how well the test items represent the content that's being assessed. Construct validity refers to how well the test measures what it states it's going to measure. And if anybody read that particular PLS5 article, they know why the PLS5 is poo-pooed upon, but we'll get there. Um, Okay. Sensitivity measures the ability of a test to accurately identify those children who have a language disorder. So um, is it going to capture what we, the children that we needed to capture and specificity measures the ability of a test to correctly identify typically developing children as typically developing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we all copacetic. There's our definitions. Okay. Right. Sensitivity. Are they going to identify the children that have the language delay specificity? Or are they going to pick out the kiddos that are basically typically developing? Yeah. Okay. And we then, have to look at both of those at the same time because they can be sensitive. Like they could over diagnose, but if they're not specific to what you're looking for, then kids are going to be underdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that was one of the issues with the PLS five was that the specificity, um, was, um, uh, not so great. Well, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself because that one makes me crazy. So I'll just skip that. But, um, y'all, you have to know this when you're going into doing your assessments, um, which ones are actually going to capture what's going on with the kid. And I humbly suggest that some of the school districts have gotten wind of and some locations have gotten wind of 
um, Mm -hmm. poor specificity and poor sensitivity in some of our standardized assessments. And they like to utilize those assessments to either over-identify or under-identify because it allows the numbers to go one of two ways. Y'all interpret that how you want to interpret it. That's just um, a very tired mama SLP's opinion on the matter. So, all right, we're going to go right into some of our standardized assessments with dog and chewy because a leaf fell outside and or somebody's, you know, walking to their car. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, we're going to go right into our standardized assessments that we use on a regular basis. Um, Miss Erin, you want to start us out the gate with the self P? Yes. So, well, with the self P in the, um, the manual, it doesn't talk about specificity or sensitivity. Um, if you look at some studies, they'll use their own measures. Um, one done by Denman, Spire, Munro, Pierce, Chen and Cordier. Hope I said all those names right. <laughs> um, looks at language assessments of children age four to twelve. Um, so some a little older than the ones that we typically see, but the self P goes into like can be used for three year olds. Um, they found sensitivity to be um, 0.64 and specificity to be 0.93. Um, so more specific, but they're not going to capture, um, everyone that we're trying to diagnose. Mm -hmm. Um, validity content was good. Uh, structural was not great at 0.33 and convergent was pretty good at 0.65. Um, for reliability test retest was good at 0.72. Um, so if you were to do it over with a kid, they're probably going to, they're going to score similar. Do you um, give guidelines on how frequently you could reassess that? No. Okay. Cause I remember that being an issue like a million years ago when I was making that transition, I was told that you couldn't reassess a kiddo. Um, when I left the school districts and went to work at a rural um, hospital and was working at the outpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, the rural school district SLP contacted me and said it was unethical of me to reassess a child that she had assessed two years previously, um, because of the test retest. She said that they were going to remember the test that she had administered two years ago and how dare I use that test. Well, that's not really what test retest means. Well, that's what I tried to explain (laughs) and it was frowned upon um, on the grounds that they were going to remember all of it and that they were I mean, be- you do get those kids that like have been given the PLS-5 a bunch of times and they definitely know, or the self too. Like I've seen that where kids, like you get a kid that's like four or five and they have probably, and you don't have all the data as far as like what the other therapists gave them because you get their discharge summary, which doesn't even always have the evaluation that they gave. Oh, I love those. Yeah. And you're just kind of grasping at straws. mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So folks, in our discharge summaries, let's do more gooder. Let's put our like baseline eval data. (laughs) Which is hard to do because like, you know, I I understand sometimes because like. We discharge on the fly. And then you're picking up another kid and like you think they're going to send your eval, but sometimes they don't always send your eval. Or my favorite is when you get a discharge summary and then the eval you get a discharge summary, you're picking up a four-year-old and the eval is from when they were in one and a half. So you're like, I don't really know. This is not valid to me anymore. We we have to test within a year. That's right. A, okay. But I don't think that, I think they just sent maybe the first eval yeah. and you're like, mm, thanks for that. Okay. So the, the reassessments while we're on this loophole or squirrel hole, um, Rabbit hole. Oh my God. I should have had like two cups of coffees. Okay. We'll keep keep going with the coffees. Okay. So when we write an IEP, it's annual, but it's based off of an assessment that could have been done as much as two to three years ago. Mm -hmm. When we have an IFSP, they're written every six months. Mm -hmm. However, best practice is indicative that we do the re-eval once a year. Now, some in, no, is it MCOs or HMOs? Some, you have to do it every six months. Yes. For some certain insurances, And you're going to need to check, and it's a case-by-case basis, some of those insurances require the reassessment every six months. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's whether it be an oropharyngeal dysphagia, which could be modified or 
clinical bedside, mm-hmm. which eh, iffy, or an assessment for language. Right. Okay. All the squirrels. All the squirrels. But yeah, um, and we'll go into this, but like also talking about like every test is so different in how you administer it. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, you, we're looking at all the data and the numbers, but the self P is not really a test valid for a kid that can't re- sit down and focus mm-hmm. because it's a lot of pictures and a lot of, there's not a lot of activity with it. No. See, I've, I haven't given the self P. I have, I remember years. my first assessment. Um, the kid was four and I, you know, you get the call from mom and, you know, you talk to them about what they think is going on. So I was like, oh, you know, probably some speech, like the self P should be pretty good. And then I get there and she was not a candidate for the self P. Like, I mean, obviously she needed services. It told me that, but like, I didn't get much information because she couldn't even participate. participate. And I was at their home and I had one test and the other tests another speech therapist had. So I did a lot of observation and a little bit of language sample and threw it all together. But I went in there and I was like, awesome. This is not the right assessment. But I could only go off of what I had. Okay. On that note, that's what differentiates a great report. Right. When you when you write out an incredibly skilled and in-tuned narrative Mm -hmm. because unfortunately some of these children and some of the tests are reliant heavily upon what the parents report. Yeah. And we'll do those at the end, but parent report versus child participation versus what the standardized or the scaled scores present with we really need to make sure that when we write our reports in there, and I'm old school, I was taught to train and compare everything to Brown stages of language development. Mm-hmm. And I understand now that we may not necessarily correlate it directly to Brown stages of language development. There's like a better researcher out there whose name I don't remember because I'm old, but um, that's how I was taught to write my narrative according to. Mm-hmm. But And where they should be mm-hmm. as far as their level. To actually present with a delay. Yes. Okay. All right. Do you want to jump into um, PLS five because I'm chomping like at the that? bit? I'm chomping at the bit. Would Can I you, you go for it? Okay. All right. So this one gets me really frustrated because this is the one that I see overused within, especially our immediate um, geographical area. So um, with um, the PLS five, the gold standard um, for sensitivity is 0.8 to 0.89. Okay, that's consider. Um, sorry, anything above a 0. 0.9 is considered good um, for sensitivity. Anything between 0. 0.8 and 0. 0.89 is considered fair. The PLS five came in at a criterion cutoff of 0. 0.83. Translation: That means out of a hundred children that we evaluate, 17 children will not receive services as they have been identified as being typically developing. Okay. 17 kids. That is inappropriate. And I venture to say um, unethical, in my opinion. I do not utilize the PLS-5. Also, fun fact, they did the PLS-5 with Bear. And it was hysterical to watch because they said, Bear, give the bear something to drink. And Bear was really confused. And he kept taking the teacup and pretending to give himself the tea, uh, the teacup or the little drink. And um, the cute little grad student was like, no, give the bear something to drink or the bear is thirsty. And he kept repeating the action. And the entire time I'm like, oh, my God. And finally, oh, bless. Finally, the clinical person um, walked in and she goes, just move on, sweetie, just move on. But I definitely watched on screen while that whole thing transpired and he got counted wrong because, you know, her son's nickname is Bear, bless. Okay, but if we're not picking up 17 kids, then we have a problem. The specificity um, of the PLS-5 came back at 0.8. So that means that we could technically be over-identifying Children, 20 out of 100 kids for services when we're not identifying 17 kids, the reverse. All right. When they actually went through the data, what they found was when they normed the PLS-5, they um, did not, they they took data on children with typical language, um, 
mild and severe, and they missed the moderate stage, Mm -hmm. which pulled all the test scores up more or less one standard deviation. That's why when you give it according to a PLS four, it actually scored hot, um, mm-hmm. scored worse on the PLS four, but that was more indicative of their true functional skill set. Um, that um, Pearson is in the process of um, doing an updated version and collecting data for the PLS six, and I'm wondering if that's because they had so much pressure from um, speech pathologists across the nation that this was not appropriately mm-hmm. standardized. Um, so, bottom line. Folks, if you're utilizing this assessment, stop and give pause. Check out that article. Um, you can find it on Ash's website. Um, feel free to email us first bite mm-hmm. at speechtherapypd.com. Um, or, or also like give a, you know, when you report, like if this is one of the only tests that you have, yes. like if you have this in the self B and you have a kid that there's absolutely no way that they're going to participate in the self put use that data of that article in your assessment to show that these scores may be um inflated. Yes. I will put that in there if I need to use this because there are times when I have to use this and I don't want to. I we share tests between five different offices. I will get an eval that I have to do within the next week. Someone needs it in Charleston. I can't like this may be the only thing that I have, but then you use your other your observations, your language yes. um, samples, your, you know, data of where they should be um, with their morpheme development wise, like use all of that, make sure you use your data to show that this isn't necessarily like the be all end all. Yeah. Because insurances will a lot of times just look at the scores, but if you make a big enough argument, sometimes they'll. Yeah. Which I mean, I remember coming through grad school and the PLS-5 was the gold standard. That was the test that we used for everybody. So when we had that, or the PLS-4, and when we rolled over to the 5, it was like, it was like watching something fall off of the pedestal. Well, and you, I feel like when I give the PLS-5, like there, there are tests where like you'll go in and you'll score and they'll do a little bit better than you thought, or, you know... The scores don't always match up with like where you thought they were going to be. But the PLS-5 is a test where like I'll be giving it to a kid and like all of a sudden we're in like the seven age range and I'm like, what is happening right now? Because they don't have like 50 words. Yeah. And you can't understand half of what you're just like, this doesn't seem appropriate. Like you're giving the test and you're like, how are, what is like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, No, I'm, I'm right. Um, Also when, and we've talked on prior episodes about how we're supposed to utilize bagless intervention. These assessments, when you're taking them to patients' mm-hmm. houses, if they're at the clinic, please tell me that you're cleaning it. But if you are taking them to patients' houses, then my goodness, we have a significant problem because um, how how well are they being sanitized? And also, do you have all the parts? Because that's the next question. Do we have all of the parts? Because I remember when I shared the PLS-5 at a different clinic before I opened up my own private practice, my God, I would get places and like half the test kit was missing and I would have to utilize. Or sometimes you'd find like kids' toys in there from like the home you were just at. Yeah, that were not the toys that were. were, Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite is when they started substituting wooden blocks filled with letters and numbers on them. And um and I was like, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to be using this solid color block so it's not visually distracting. But, I mean, you know, that was, that is working on the fly. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody out there is like, yep. And I remember when, like, half the pages were, like, like chewed on. Not by, like, a dog, but by a kid. I did have that happen one time. Sorry, dog running in, assisted with that thought process. Okay. All right. Told P. What you got for the told P? Um, so for sensitivity, um, of the global language score, which they used a standard score of 90 as the cutoff, um, was 0.75. So like not wonderful. Um, specificity with a standard score of 90 was 0.87. So better. Wait, which which told P was it? Was it the told P? Are they in the third edition or the fourth edition? They're in the because I can't remember how many told P's were out now. Four. Okay. Cool. Um, and then their validity was not great. 
or reliability. Um, content was what they called fair at 0.57. Um, convergent was 0.61. Discriminant validity was 0.34. That's awful. Holy cow, that's so Both bad. tests, retests. Innerator was... 0.50, which in a rater is always interesting to me how like you can rate. Wait, is that the ability for one person to s- compare it to another person mm-hmm. testing it? Okay. And then okay. test retest was 0.69. So they called that good in this study. Um, I got to be honest. I haven't thought of most of these terms since like I took. I know practice. it's really taken. So, like, <laughs> I don't. There's you know, so, there's so many other women out there that are like, what the heck is happening? My head hurts. I haven't used the tool. I think I used it in grad school, but I haven't used it since I've been out of grad school. My first job, that was what was primarily used in the public school district that I worked in was okay. the told. But I feel like we were in the PLS four stage, and I think it was like the told three back mm-hmm. in the day. Yeah, yeah, I um. We don't, I mean, we don't have that where I am, but. All right. All right. So that, those are probably um, a good thing because they're not going to capture the kids that we want to capture. So. Yeah. Okay. Now who's, all right. So you described that when you utilize the self P, you don't like to utilize that test for a kiddo that can't sit still. Right. Yeah. No. And I have used the PLS five for my babies that are more complex and medically fragile, but I hated that it just kept coming across as a flat line, 55 standard scores all the way across for like my kiddos with severe and profound disabilities. Also, I didn't feel like that for my children. All right, let me be perfectly frank. I don't feel like any of these assessments for my children with multiple disabilities or a cortical vision impairment Mm -hmm. or um, a vision loss. I feel like none of these actually capture what the kid can do. Right. I feel like they harp. They capture what they can do. Yeah. And I, I hate that. My job is not to tell a family what their child can't do. Well, that's, I think it's, and I don't know if this will sound bad, but for some of those kids, like you do the test because insurance will cover it if their standard yep. score is that low. And then yep. you have to use your own experience and your own knowledge and your own questions and observations to figure out what goals they need, figure out. But when you're explaining this to the parent or like when you're handing them the eval that you did, I feel like I always have to preface it. Even with like some of my kids that I'm not too worried about, especially when you put like an age and I, you have like, sometimes you have to put it on there. Sometimes I just don't put it on there because like like the age comparison. Yeah. Like when you have a one-year-old, like I had recently and you do the real and it says they're functioning at a six month old and you're like, but that's not like they have so many great skills. This is not necessarily what I'm seeing. This is what the test, like, I don't, it's just hard to explain that to the parent. It's very shocking for the parent to see that. Yeah. Because no parent wants to see. I was the mom. I am the speech path Mm -hmm. with the kid who had speech therapy that sucks. But they always told us in grad school, they were like, don't really report. Like age um, equivalent is not something that no. is really appropriate even based yeah. on what they report. And you always have to instill hope. So when you write your, when you write these reports, y'all. Start with strengths. Yes. Always start with. Sandwich. Like- strengths, weakness, strengths. Mm-hmm. Or I do strengths, weakness, Moving forward, plan to care. This is what we're going mm-hmm. to like. This is our goal. And it's a bit, especially with the kids that like, when you eval them, you're like, I don't know if they're going to qualify. Sometimes I feel like in the report, you tend to go towards the negative because you want insurance to see all of that. And then you forget that like the parents reading it mm-hmm. and you don't, and you in your head know that they have all these strengths because you're not too concerned. But then you realize in the report, it's like, these are their weaknesses so that you know that insurance is seeing it because they're borderline. Yeah. No, that's, which is not most of our kids, but no. Well, I mean, <laughs> the kiddos that I see, yes, but <laughs> also that also goes for you as well, friend. Uh, okay. All right. Now this is one. Um, do we um, want to talk about the real or do we want to go into your favorite? Um, let's start with the real. Okay. So all that being said, there's a reason why I personally don't like utilizing those standardized assessments of the 
in general, the self, the PLS5 and the told P, because I just feel like for my children in early intervention, there's so many external variables, like what's going on in the home. How they also have never, half of them have never done this. Like when no. you're in the school, I mean, unless it's their, you know, they're just turned three and they're getting evaled for school services. Like most of the time they've at least been through this a little bit. They're learning to sit in a classroom. They're learning to attend to the teacher. But when you go into their home with like the two-year-old, they are like, who are you? What, why do you have yep. pictures? Why are yep. we not just playing? Oh, you brought toys. And then you have to like hide, hide, hide the, toys. the toys for the test kit, which is how you end up with random other tests uh-huh. or random yeah. other toys. Yeah. But that makes it very difficult because this is the first time you're meeting them. You're a stranger. Have these kids like stay at home with mom or dad. And so it's like a whole new experience for them anyways. <laughs> I'm just remembering the time I brought home fleas and one of the test kits for the company because the house had a flea infestation. And that was fantastic. This was back in the day when it had the little soft purple teddy bear mm-hmm. instead of the hard plastic teddy bear. And I yeah. kind of wonder if that's one of the reasons why that changed over. But like, yeah. Okay. So all of those reasons, when I do my assessments, I switched over and um, I switched over to the Rosetti. And I didn't make that switch until a couple of years ago. I was working up in um, at a hospital um, just outside of the city. It was a rural hospital. I was PRNing over there. And there was three SLPs in the outpatient clinic. And we primarily all um, treated pediatrics because it was a designated early intervention um, facility because there was no home health SLPs there, right? So what we didn't realize at that moment in time was that all three of us on the same day had scheduled a new eval. And there was only one PLS4. They didn't even have the PLS5 yet. And so um, the senior therapist said, all right, well, I booked mine first, so I'm taking the PLS4. Here's the Rosetti. And she hands me the Rosetti. And I've literally never seen the Rosetti a day in my life. And I panicked because I have 0.2 seconds to familiarize myself with this assessment that I'm about to go give to like a 15-month-old. What she didn't know is that she changed my stars as a clinician, and I have never looked back, right? Mm -hmm. Then I went through this whole process with Theo. And, um, Sir Bear, they gave me, um, um, after they tell me my kid has like moderate conductive hearing loss bilaterally, they give me, and he's an automatic qualifier for early intervention. They give me a CF bless who was terrified to walk in my house. Um, cause apparently I'm opinionated and strong-willed who knew. Um, and she walked in with the reel and based off of the reel, my kid, who had a moderate bilateral conductive hearing loss, did not qualify for speech therapy, but he couldn't hear. And it was based off of the real. And I was, I'm, I'm still, I was, I was mad. I was not a happy camper because the kid couldn't hear. He was too in change and had like maybe 10 words. And that was after I had fought to get services. And mm-hmm. I mean, although he did have the most amazing sentence, like the first sentence was, oh, it fell down. And like, that will go down as the most awesome first sentence ever uttered in the history of sentences. But um, the real was a series of questions, but yeah. it didn't take into account, like, in my opinion, what the kid actually did. So you use the real. Mm-hmm. How do you. one of the ones that we have. Yep. Yep. So how do you, I mean, where does that fall in your arsenal of assessments? Um, and it's not standardized score, right? It's all it's standardized. It is okay. Yeah. All right. So then you um, talk. So to that's that one. why, like, that's I think why the company that I work for chose the real over the Rosetti because it's standardized. Mm-hmm. With the Rosetti, you have to like justify a little bit more um, your use of it. I and again, don't know how this will sound, but I tend to use the real as a means of understanding where the parent's coming from, like where they think their child is functioning comparative to my observations. And what I like about the reel is that I can get it done within like 20 minutes and then spend the rest of the session observing the child and like digging deeper based on those questions. Um, And for my kids that are like one, it's pretty like, there's not much else I can do with them. 
Um, I do really like the Rosetti too. It's not as much available. It's not as available. Um, but we do have it and I will use it. That one I think takes like that one you use in the whole assessment, like you're going to go in and observe and ask questions. And I like how it includes all of that and kind of guides you as far as what they should be doing. Whereas like, and the real three, some of the questions you're like, and I'll show up. And for reception, <laughs> for, for those, oops, sorry, I just spit. But for those of y'all that couldn't see, that was like her like confused, frustrated, deep thinking eyebrow face. <laughs> well, like the validity is not, is a lot worse for the receptive for the real. And it makes sense because half the questions for the receptive are like following directions and they just kind of ask it in different ways. Or one of the questions is like, does your child like, does your child communicate while they're sitting or like not moving? Like some of the questions are very like, I don't does really know where mean? this is coming from. And I'll ask parents and I'll privacy and be like, some of these questions are weird, but it made me think about it last week specifically. Like a mom was asking me questions because the kids receptive came out lower than their expressive. And it with the younger kids that happens a lot. That doesn't mean that they have autism, but what it means a lot is that it, for a parent, especially, it's harder for you to comprehend and understand what they're doing receptively if they're not doing it expressively. And because it's parent rapport, it's going to look like they're worse receptively than expressive um, because they don't have that knowledge of those skills and they're not always paying attention to it. Like some of these questions, the parents are like, I don't know. Like, I don't pay attention to whether they're like, talking when they're moving or sitting or if they're like looking at my mouth or things like that. So that's another part of the reel that's hard is that parents don't always know. But with receptive, I think it's hard to measure that because almost all the questions deal with following directions. And most of these kids don't follow don't directions. Follow directions. <laughs> and how so most one, children don't follow and directions. And like the biggest one is like, do they respond to no or stop? Which like I mean, a lot of these kids just don't, I mean, they know what you're asking. They just don't do it. My favorite is when you ask a parent that and then they're like immediately like the kid will run around and make like a bad choice. And they're like, no. And the kid looks over their shoulder at the parent and gives them that really naughty face and then goes on and does yeah. what they want to do anyways. And the parent's like, does that count? And I'm always like, well, they knew what you wanted. However, the naughtiness trumped their ability to follow a direction. Yes. Yes. Just because tiny humans are naughty does not make them, you know, bad. Right. It just makes them. But a lot of these questions parents don't know the answer to because they're not, they're not, they don't focus on it like we do. This is our job. Mm -hmm. But I do use it more as a means of getting, as that sounds, getting a standard score and then making a lot of my own observations. Nope, that works. Okay. So then with what, when you have a tiny one, like I'm thinking when we get like, not necessarily our NICU grads, but you have a kiddo that has like a, gen a known genetic mm -hmm. diagnosis, yeah. like Down syndrome or um, uh, 22Q or something like that. Or when we have our little ones with RETS, if we, if they come across, do you have a preference? Cause I know I'm going to pull my Rosetti quick, mm -hmm. but I mean, is that when you would pull the real over the PLS out of y'all's arsenal at work? If they're younger, uh -huh. probably. I mean, I probably would want the Rosetti more so just to, because in that case, like, you know, they're going to qualify. Mm -hmm. So you want to more so figure out like the real, I more so do with a kid that I'm not sure if they're going to qualify. Mm -hmm. Um, the Rosetti, I feel like will help you then dig deep into, cause it looks, it has so many great Things that it looks, it looks at. at the different domains of language. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the Rosetti covers pragmatics, social skill. Um, wait, where's my copy? I have a copy of one floating around here. But um, play doesn't play. it cover play? That's what it is. Play. Um, here, right here. So with the Rosetti, I've got interaction, attachment, pragmatics, gesture, play, language comprehension, and language expression. Which I think for some people, it gets overwhelming. We use the Rosetti a lot in grad school. Um, your favorite uses it, use it oh, a lot. Oh, I loved her. 
Um, she's clearly talking about the lovely lady that tortured my own tiny human. And yes. she's a goddess. And one day I want to grow up and be her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, I think it can be overwhelming, but it yeah. gives you so much information. You look at observed, elicited, and parent reporting. Mm-hmm. The downside is it does not offer a standardized score. Right. So when we administer it in our state, the way our state does all the ruling, um, uh, the state early intervention program wants a standardized score. So I had to explain, well, this test goes down to birth. And I mean, you don't need to have a standardized score. You can show a percent delay because a percent delay is also sufficient. Yeah. So if the child is 24 months and has uh, an expressive language skill commiserate with a mastery age of nine to 12 months, then you've got in excess of a uh, 50% delay. Mm -hmm. Clearly the child qualifies. However, unless I specifically put that in there, that this is the percent delay and this subsection, they will automatically not qualify the kid Mm -hmm. for services, which is incredibly frustrating because it's math. I don't like math, but I have to calculate it. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, Make sure you're watching on all of these, the simple common mistakes of like calculating like yeah. chronological age. I mean, those little things. Don't forget that until yeah. they're two. Yeah. I mean. Or sorry, chronological age, adjusted age until, until they're, they're two. Yeah. And that's one thing that when I was coming along, it was 12 months and now it's two years of age. That being said, we had this discussion earlier this week. If you have a child that had extreme prematurity, we're talking our like 24 weekers, they are still most likely not going to be fully caught up by two years of age, Mm -hmm. especially when they had like an undiagnosed bleed and it's caught later or different Mm -hmm. variables. So don't assume that it's not like two is ma- okay, they're magically going to be fine. Like they're going to wake up on their second birthday and be like, ta-da, I can do all the things now and talk in two word utterances. But what I have seen, and I don't know if it's just like my current caseload or what's going on, but these families have this false hope that, but they'll be fine by two, right? Mm. Because somebody so be somewhere yeah, has said that. in like a post a NICU discharge follow-up plan of care meeting that, oh, it'll, they'll be caught up by two. And I'm like, that's misinformation. That's not at all what that that's, means. That's not at all what that means, but like, rawr. Okay. So with, with the, the Rosetti, we have to make sure that, um, when you are calculating it out, that you do give one heck of a fantastic narrative mm-hmm. because it only does the percent and it does not do, um, but which you can score. though, with all the information that you have, like, I feel like, with the real, you can be a little lazy, like you're asking the parents. And basically, if a kid is one and has no words, or like if a kid is two and isn't yet talking in like two word, three word phrases, like the way the real works is you have very specific questions and then it'll get all of a sudden it jumps to like how many words they have. And if they don't have like 50, then mm-hmm. they're going to, they're done. So yeah, like it has a lot of other questions and that gives you some information. But at the same time, once you hit that mark of them not having a lot of words, it do, you don't get any more information, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. The, which Okay. So another problem that I have is that none of these assessments take into account um, all the other skills, all, all the other skills. But I have a couple of kids on my case that I'm thinking of one little guy in particular. Um, there is no way... Any standardized assessment ever would capture this kid. Little Booger had seven strokes. Mm-hmm. He is deaf in one ear, hemi, he can't see a hemianopsia. Um, the lovely Miss Alex is here from the University of Virginia. She's been riding shotgun this week. Miss Alex, shout it out, say hi. Hello. <laughs> but like she can say the multisyllabic words. But this little guy, um, his first language, because he has acquired apraxia speech, is sign language. Mm-hmm. He has only maybe five consistent B initial phoneme words. Um, we can say ball, by, bay for baby, and book for book. And like we're slowly increasing our B sounds at three and a half years of age. Mm-hmm. But his sign language, 250, 350 words, easy. I can't keep up with his sign language. So when these assessments ask, 
you know, how many words does he have? If I'm looking at like verbal output, we're going to bomb. If I'm looking at his ability to string together like multiple signs, I mean, he's the one that told me I had a big butt spontaneously. Might I add, he pointed to it and he said, you have a big butt. And then he said, silly. And I was like, awesome. But it was all in sign language. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at least with the Rosetti, I can, I can quantify that somehow. Like mm-hmm. for this, for children. Well, it can do that too because it's not standardized. Yeah. Because if you look at like standardization, our kids are so, um, what's the right word? Our kids, there's smaller populations of kids with these diagnoses, especially kids that you see. And Multiple you can't standardize because there's not enough, there's not enough of them to give them all this test to then figure out where they fall based on certain diagnoses. Yep. And you're always going to compare them to typical. So when they're compared to typical, they're going to be delayed. Or like kids, with, you know, there's. And it's hard because this kid has sign, which is a language. Then you're delving into like, OK, well, is he even, you know, does he even have a deficit if he's communicating so well in sign? See, people and that, that are deaf would say absolutely not. Yes. And that is, and that's where I get into this position where. But if the family does want him to be verbal, then he should also get services. Yes. Because yes. technically he's bilingual, you know, if a kid, but then he's doesn't have a deficit because it's. That's, that's yeah. my rub. And I have several, several children that. They may not have a hearing loss, but I mean, I've got a little one with Down syndrome. I see I'm thinking of her Wednesday mornings. And again, we have talked at length before how multiple children with Down syndrome do not have um, apraxia of speech, childhood apraxia of speech, which again, I don't think is a thing, but they have um, increased likelihood to have flaccid dysarthria. So little lady has very limited verbal speech, maybe 25 words spontaneous, but her sign language I mean, she's easily got 75 to 100 words. And that's that's very frustrating because she and she also has hearing loss. We have, you know, chronic ear infections and, you know, bless her little eustachian tubes are so tiny that they can't even get like a tube in. And I've been waiting for her to get bigger to even get a tube to fit. Mm -hmm. But that's her that's her first language right now. That's her native language. Mm -hmm. And. I'm always, when, when I go to write those reports, I have to quantify, okay, this is where we are with verbal speech. This is it where we are with functional communication. But then we have our children that have autism spectrum disorders, our little friend who has a communication device and he can communicate on, on his AAC device. And if yeah. we're doing this once every year and doing assessment, don't even get me started with AAC <laughs> because there is no, like how many times I written a report that says there is no standardized assessment that fully captures yeah. the skills. Like that's, I mean, I don't or know if what that's about, something that someone's working on. Cause that would be hint, hint, somebody tell us that you're working on this or what about our children with the cortical vision impairment? Carol's coming on. Dr. Carol page is coming back in like a couple weeks and we're doing an entire um, hour on cortical vision impairment only, mm-hmm. but these assessments, the standardized assessments that make you point to a picture, they don't fit any of the parameters no. for CVI user-friendly and how many of these children have a CVI that we don't know for sure, but we may suspect because they're attracted to certain colors, mm-hmm. um, certain, um, overwhelmed by a busy background. I'm thinking of that, like, quarter what is it like four pictures and you got to pick out which dandelion is wet yeah yeah right uh-huh. and like their shoes got wet. what was the weather like today isn't that the question yeah. or something there or like yeah pick the picture which yeah. describes the situation so i never i mean just for the sheer sake of having to say the questions exactly as they are read in the book that always drove me crazy oh same because it was not my strength. Yeah. Standardized tests are not my strength. No. I get no, so No, this is why we like the Rosetti be- and I the can't. real because we just squirrel. So like. And then it's it's just too much. I just, I don't blame the kids. I'm like, I'm bored too. I'm so sorry. And then like you get so frustrated because if you could just explain it a different way, they'd probably get it right. But you're like, oh, okay. And the parent's sitting right there and they're like, no, 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 no. What? Like, and they try and help. And oh, oh, and the parent's helping. You can't. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. But they get so frustrated because, or like some, they'll be like, did he get it right? And I'll be like, no, 
But, the, but you, and I hate that because the kid picks up on whether or not they got it right or wrong. Yeah. Well, also I and then they're like they're watching you. Like some of the higher functioning uh-huh, kids, they're like, uh-huh. "What did you write?" And I'm like, "Nothing. I'm just writing it." But the thing with these kids is that for like someone like you. You don't really need the standardized test because you've had enough of these kids that you know what skills to look for, you know what questions to ask, you know whether to look for a CBI, you know to look for, you know. It's your nice way of saying I'm old, but I love you. No, no, no. <laughs> My point is like standardized tests, especially when you're new, are good because they show you what to look for. They show you what skills they should have. They help you kind of dissect and write goals cautiously because – I've seen a lot of goals that are like right from the self. Okay. Also, do not write your goals verbatim from the test. We are supposed to, that's a whole lecture for another day, but we are supposed to be doing ABLs, activities of daily living. These standardized assessments do not directly reflect the WHO model, the World Health Organization framework for ADLs and early intervention. At American Academy of Pediatrics. We just did that mm. one the last time around. I'm so frustrated. I can't even spit it out. Um, it has to be ADLs right. all the way. So. Which is easier to see if you're in the home. But the problem becomes newer clinicians that they're, they don't know what to look for. So part of the problem is when they look at do these tests, they're writing goals that aren't really functional for the kid. Because they're looking at what a typically developing child should do. Mm-hmm. And like I write very general goals for a lot of my new kids, especially when I've just evaled them because I don't really know what their skill set is because they're mm-hmm. not that comfortable with me, like a total communication goal. And you kind of try and figure out like whether they're more visual learners, whether they're more verbal learners, mm-hmm. things like that. But I think it's hard when you get kids like we get and you're new. And I mean, me, for example, and you don't always like know what to look for as far as their skills. Okay. So that makes sense. Absolutely. So how do we resolve this? Okay. So if you do an assessment and, um, you don't capture all the information that you need, like my first assessment with the child that I literally had no idea what her skills were because all I knew is that she couldn't properly attend to a test. Yes. We have to quantify that. Mm -hmm. We have to write that up. And now most insurances will not. And also when you go to bill and you go to put the CPT code in, there's a separate CPT code for Medicaid reeval. And I don't know if it's unique to our state or different states, but in the state of South Carolina, you are only allowed to bill for a language eval one time yeah. and every assessment thereafter is a re-eval that was not told to me. And when I moved here, we, I kept getting kickback, um, uh, evaluation denied, mm-hmm. but it was because I didn't know that I had to use the Medicaid re-eval or code. Most people will bill it as a, um, diagnostic treatment. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's fine as well, because you may not get all that information right out the gate. You probably won't. And, and we have to be prepared for that. There's a shift between school where they say you have to do everything and that first session to functional reality where your first session is basically just observe and report and you're hanging on for dear life. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't run. And when you're in the homes, you can't run to the office. Like I remember when I was an outpatient I had a kid that oh, you mom, just run right down the yeah, like mom was like, oh, it's his speech. And I was like, let's grab a language assessment while we're at it. But like when you're in the home, you're like, what do I do? Also on that note, there's a reason we didn't cover any articophrenology ones um, today on the grounds that most early intervention um, is not, we're not allowed to treat articophrenology unless it's severe outlier documented apraxia of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise it, we have to treat the functional language first. If once you hit that magical three, then we're allowed to do our tick and phonology. And I don't know if that's just unique to our state or if that's nationwide, but yeah. I feel like that. Well, technically based on the norms, you're not supposed to master many sounds until, until you're, you're three. three. So, so yeah, that, there's a reason why we didn't go into those. Um, 
Also, as we have lovingly joked, you do a and good job with that. I don't. <laughs> it's debatable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bless. I can't say multisyllabic words. There's a reason I don't do um, Arctic and phonology sessions. Um, okay. So functional strategies to take away. Don't get hung up on not being able to finish one assessment in that first eval. Give yourself grace to go back and do a diagnostic therapy session. Um, uh, at least for us, typically the second session is the IFSP meeting. And you can also use that as uh, a fact-finding session because yeah. sometimes the early interventionist or in different states, the service coordinator has been in there prior to the SLP walking in. It might be OT, it might be the PT, but yeah. our colleagues can give you, okay, well, I've been here for this much time and this is what I have seen. Yeah. And it could be a completely different picture than and call them bef- try to call them before because yes. they a lot of times will give you a more realistic view of what's going on. Yep. Then any documentation you may have obtained mm-hmm. in all honesty, you probably haven't gotten any records, but yeah. yeah. But, um, and they, a lot of times will ask like what the parents want as goals. So I found that helpful sometimes to see like, you know, I would work on my goals and then we'd have a meeting down the road and the, yeah, I would say that the mom wanted to work on like these four specific words, which like may not be core vocab, may not be core vocab, but those are, um, motivating for the parent. If the, you know, if you're working on those words, like I don't blame a mom for wanting a kid to say mama. So if I, you know, if they really want me to focus on that a little bit more, that's something that I can kind of incorporate to give, to give the parent more motivation you know, if they're seeing success in words that they want the kid to say, that mm-hmm. sometimes gives them a little push too. Yep. And and remember when you're writing your eval up, most of us forget in the world of early intervention, home health, we're supposed to be writing 90-day plan of cares. Mm-hmm. Um, that was hard at first because I think like you're, you don't see a kid for longer than two and a half months in grad school. So I would write goals that were a little more you almost, you never see a kid reach their goals usually in grad school, which sounds bad to say. But then when you get into EI, I learned how to write goals like, oh, we actually met this goal. Like, which sounds dumb. But in grad school, you usually don't see them meet those goals because you're not with them for that long. So it's like this weird, like place to be where you're going to have to like make a whole new goal and where they're you know, our ticks, sometimes they would meet them a little more, but then I learned how to write the goals where our goal was to meet it within 90 days. Yes. And if they didn't, you kind of reevaluate your plan, but even long-term goals, then you, you know, is your goal for them to have like this many words, like you can write long-term goals like that. See, and that's where for my kiddos that have severe and profound disabilities, I don't write a long-term goal because my short-term goal and my long-term goal are typically so akin. I write three goals, a home exercise program, um, a PO intake and functional language. Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah, I would write too many goals at the beginning too. And yep. you're like, Oh mm-hmm. crap. But that's, but that's driven by all those subsets on all the standardized score. You feel like you have to write a goal for every area of deficit. Yeah. And then you get so hung up on, I have to do this many things in a therapy session, which is right. where it carries but over But I know that I'm doing a lot more yep. in the session. It may not always be apparent to people watching. Like sometimes I think I look like a crazy person or that when I'm doing the most, it looks like I'm doing the least. And like, I'm all excited about it. And the parents like, what is she doing on the floor? Like, this is weird. But I think that like, as you learn, especially in EI, like you're working on so many goals at the same time, you know, maybe you're measuring one of them, but that doesn't mean that the child's getting any less mm-hmm. benefit out of it. Nope. Um, absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense that, okay. All right. So then, and, and one last thing, um, also, you feel free to all have your own opinions. These are just our opinions that we are very strong about. <laughs> these, these are our triangle of evidence-based practice, opinion, and informed information. Um, when you're all right, so to, to wrap it up, when you're going out and you're picking out your assessments, if you work for a company and you do not feel that they have the assessments to capture what you need in the children that you are evaluating and treating. 
provide them, have the crucial conversation, sit down with the person, whoever does purchasing and say, okay, this is the kiddos that I am seeing. These are the area of deficits. Mm -hmm. This is validity. If you don't tell them, they don't know. And okay. And here's the deal. There's whole companies that are run by people that have business degrees and there's a lot of money to be made in rehab when you own a company and have multiple people on staff. They don't understand the technicalities that we talked about. I mean, my goodness, we can barely say those technicalities, but they don't, they don't get it. Another big problem I have seen is a lot of clinics and a lot of companies have physical therapists as rehab managers and PTs may not know the intricacies within a language assessment because they don't give those kind of assessments. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found that our OT can, um, sometimes do because they have to give like the, um, sensory profile index Mm -hmm. so that, you know, they're, they're more used to, that's real good English, Michelle, redneck English, but, and don't be afraid, like as a CF to lean in. Yeah. I mean, I ask a lot of questions and sometimes I think I'm annoying, but you're not, it's you, you have muchness. You have found your muchness. We are the queens of self-deprecating humor here and we're working on it. But, but it's – and, you know, talk to your supervisor about it. Explain – like I think we're so used to in grad school like thinking that we don't know what we're talking about. So every once in a while it's good to – like you do know what you're talking about. You do know what you need. Do the research if you have the data. I mean I use a lot of data to explain why I do certain things, especially when you work – As we should. Like – you know, when you work with other professionals, like other, where I work, speech therapists are the minority. And so sometimes I have to use the data to explain why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. So, and it's just because they didn't have, they had a different educational background than I did. It doesn't, you know, sometimes it just helps to explain where you're coming from and for them to explain where they're coming from so that we can better understand each other. Have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So bottom line, what we're saying is pick the test that's right for the kid that you are evaluating. Have a backup plan. Don't stress if you don't get it all done at once, but make sure that you are that you lean in And if you don't feel comfortable leaning in with your person, talk to a friend, a colleague, and see if y'all can go in together and have the conversation. Mm -hmm. But you can be the source of change. You can advocate for the best test to capture and reflect what you need out of our kiddos. But make sure you're educated and you understand what the test that you're using may miss. Yeah. Yeah. So... And then stay tuned because as the assessments change every single iteration, and also that's one thing I really like about having and taking, if you're not a clinical supervisor, y'all volunteer your time with your local college or university, because there is something to be said. These graduate students know way more than what they think that they know. And they come and when they ask the questions about the testing protocols, that makes you a better therapist. So, Mm -hmm. all right. Ms. Alex, one more time. Thank you for coming. Did you have fun this week? Did we torture you? I had a lot of fun. It's been really great. Yeah. She's like, oh, God, don't put me on microphone, Michelle. Okay, yay. <laughs> All right. We survived my oldest having a concussion this week. It's been quite the eventful week. Aaron, thank you. Thanks. All right, everybody stay tuned. We're going to switch over to questions. Also, don't forget, next week we have the one and only Mr. Craig Coleman, MACCC SLP. BCSF, ASHA Fellow, and current um, candidate for VP of Planning for ASHA on. So that's like a super awesome, exciting Mm -hmm. episode. And on that note, if you have not voted, y'all vote in the ASHA elections. This is Crux. Cool. Thanks. Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional is partnered up with FeedingMatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the feedingmatters.org learning center. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. That's right. 
On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit ipfdc.org. One more time, that's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.